Okay, I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Friday, October 5th, 2012. My name is William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call. Today, we are honored to have as our guest Captain Henry J. Hendricks II, Director of Naval History and Heritage Command. Uh, Captain Hendricks will provide a brief background on NHHC's services and products and will also discuss the influence of naval history on the modern Navy, including some insight into his interactions with the Pentagon staff where NHHC historians and archivists made a difference in shaping policy and other decisions. Sir, with that, uh, if you have any opening statement, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, NHHC has a, a long and a very rich history. Uh, we, you know, found our we were founded essentially with John Adams establishing the Library of the Navy back during his administration uh, as President of the United States. And we've evolved slowly over that time, first to become the uh, the Office of Naval Records and Library, and then finally Naval Historical Center, and now the Naval History and Heritage Command. But we are primarily uh, here. To, uh, to store the archives and the artifacts and, and the books and the records of the Navy. And, uh, and so we're very much a resource, um, uh, a research resource for the Navy, the Navy leadership, uh, and the American people. Um, you know, throughout our time, we've, we've had highs and lows. Uh, certainly during uh, World War II, uh, we were uh, involved in collecting information uh, and then that information became what what's now sort of the world famous Samuel Eliot Morrison multi-volume history of World War II. Uh, we produced some great compilations that deal with the American Revolution, the Quasi Wars, the Barbary, and these are the books that within the naval research community that we're most well known for. Um, we uh, we also uh, today continue to do research and collect uh, the ships' histories and naval histories of the individual units on an annual basis. Uh, but by and large, right now, uh, one of the focuses that I'm doing is um, working to address some of the shortcomings uh, here with the storage of materials in our archives and our artifacts that were identified um, by the Inspector General's investigation of uh, 2011 uh, to make sure that we rectify those so that we preserve the Navy's history going forward, as well as provide uh, research and, uh, for the Navy's leadership uh, going forward to make sure that they're, they're well uh, based uh, with, uh, with the naval historical facts as we have them. Uh, we're also working with our museums to improve our engagement with the American people. We have over 1.7 million Americans visit a series of naval museums that go from uh, Pensacola, Florida, all the way up to Seattle, Washington, uh, every year where they want to come and immerse themselves in the history of the Navy. And we're really looking forward to this month because this month uh, both uh, contains the birthday of the Navy on October 13th, which is going to be a major event this year, as well as the CNO is dedicated this month as Warfighter Month. And so uh, we're providing the historical research and backstop uh, to give the examples of the warfighter spirit that has permeated the United States Navy since its founding 237 years ago. Um, I'm excited about being here myself personally because um, I, I, have my, I have several degrees uh, related to history and, and in history. And uh, I've worked in the Pentagon. I worked in the Office of Secretary of Defense for three years, both in OSD policy as well as the Office of Net Assessment. 
and history performed or served as a significant backstop to the analysis that we provided to the secretary and to the undersecretary for policy. Uh, I think that there's a lot of utility in uh, basing your analysis in history, drawing trends from history, drawing analogies from history. Um, we we somewhat joke at times about being forward-looking historians, and uh, that is in fact what I am and what I encourage others to be to make sure that we look at uh, historic, you know, history um, to make sure that we're not repeating its mistakes and, and perhaps finding more lessons from it. So right now, uh, you know, my goals going forward here at History and Heritage Command is to make sure that uh, we help the Navy to identify who we are as a service um, and, and what we stand for uh, as individuals and as, a, as an entity. Uh, I think it's always important for individuals to uh, identify the fact that they belong to something greater than themselves. And I think that that, uh, that rich history that we have is, is a large reason why we attract such great talent to come into the Navy, both officer and enlisted, and seek to serve this nation. Uh, the other thing is I want to make sure that History and Heritage Command is here to serve the Navy's leadership, be it the CNO or the Secretariat, uh, that we serve the fleet, and, of course, that we serve the American people. So. With that being said, I, I, I open it for questions. Thank you, sir. And uh, there were two people who joined us while you were in the, in the middle of your opening statement. Can I get your names? Sure, Sal from uh, Commander Salamanders. Okay, and who else was that? Raven Pritchett from Information Dissemination. All right, and we'll go to Gail. You're first. Yeah, Captain, first, thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I've got uh, a two-part question. Uh, one is uh, the information uh, at your organization available online, and two, do you have an uh, unclassed story you could tell about how history helped uh, make some policy decision, policy point recently? Well, uh, first thing, there, there, there is uh, an increasing amount of materials that are available online. We have a lot of our photo collection that's online uh, and available now. And we're beginning to digitize uh, unclassified aspects of the archives, and we have a long-term effort that we're funding right now uh, to convert those into digital images and get out there. We have some principal documents. The, the one that's uh, perhaps most famous right now is uh, uh, a report that we contributed significantly to on ship naming that's up and downloadable online. Uh, and so, you know, to that degree, we're, we're, we have some materials online, and we're attempting to uh, make more of them available online for researchers. Um, you know, I, I, I walk a, a balance uh, in the effort, you know, because I look at the books like uh, the, the compiled naval document series on the Barbary Wars and the Quasi Wars, and now we're finishing up uh, the fourth volume of the Naval War of 1812. And, and putting those out in publishing are important, but I think it's also important that we make those available to online researchers because more and more, uh, especially amongst the, the youth of America, such as uh, like my own 16-year-old daughter, uh, are more interested in reading those things through their iPads than they are going to the library and checking them out. So we want to make sure we engage with that digital aspect of the American public. Uh, with regard to your second question, um, you know, I, I, I think probably the, the one historical example that uh, has been used, is being used, and will be continue to be used, especially in the uh, fiscal environment that we're in right now, uh, is that we've, we've drawn uh, within OSD and in the Department of the Navy a number of lessons from the interwar period, the 1920s and 1930s, after we had merged from World War I, 
um, and budgets were shrunk up quite a bit, and uh, the U.S. government and the military had to make decisions on where they were going to make their investments um, in new technologies, new tactics, techniques, procedures, as well as strategies. And uh, interestingly enough, they made a number of really good calls. There was an era of innovation. Uh, and so as we emerged uh, into World War II, late 1930s and in World War II, uh, those investments uh, paid off significantly. And so as we face uh, this era, as we're exiting, have exited Iraq and we're looking at um, the, the transition plan out of Afghanistan, and we're looking either at um, flat budgets, um, if not uh, declining budgets in some cases, then where we make our investments going forward. And so I think uh, history is, uh, is providing us, you know, some pretty good examples of, uh, of the importance of looking seriously at those investments and thinking about the future. So uh, I'll, I'll throw that one out just as sort of the prime case example that comes up time and time again. Well, thank you very much uh, again for your time. And uh, William, I have another appointment and have to disengage. Thanks again. Roger that, Dale. Thank you. And to uh, Commander Salamander, uh, just a note to everybody also, please make sure your phone is on mute if, uh, if you're not asking a question. Uh, Kim, Commander Salamander, you're, uh, you're next. Great, thanks. And uh, Captain Hendricks, uh, thanks for the opportunity. And in the course of answering uh, Gail's question, you kind of you answered uh, mine, but I think that's good because it lets me go, go a little bit deeper with you on that. I think you're exactly right that there's a, especially at moments where you're, there's a moment of change, whether we're talking about the Pacific pivot or how do you respond to potential significant budgetary threats, history has some lessons that it, it can teach us, um, but also about emerging operational things. And I know that we saw in Iraq and also in Afghanistan where eventually uh, commanders decided to reach out to, to get some of the histories of lesson, uh, the lessons that history has to provide for us, or at least some hints on directions and things they may want to look at. Uh, and in your opening statements, you really brought out some, some great programs that, that you're doing in order to, to get history out there and represent it in a lot of the, the great museums that we have out here to help tell that story. And that's, in a way, pushing history out. Is there something that the Navy can do to work with its uh, commanders in the field, not for them to be more proactive, to try to pull from history uh, early on enough as things change, as opposed to just being pushing history out there, try to get a culture where they pull from history. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, and, and um, I'll give uh, I'll give uh, props, I guess, is the the, the day to uh, Chief of Naval Operations Greenert right now because uh, he has not only uh, talked the talk about the importance of history, but he's been walking the walk uh, both in uh, making sure that he's asking the questions of the historians, uh, actively uh, coming over and, uh, and speaking about issues. For instance, um, Warfighter Month right now uh, going on. Well, one of the anniversaries that comes down during Warfighter Month this, this month is the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, this is one of the seminal events. It was, it was almost the only hot battle of the Cold War uh, where, where everything really went on the line. And uh, a number of new technologies, it was the first introduction of, uh, for instance, the P-3 Orion um, in, in a real active high-visibility mission flying uh, patrols down in the Caribbean on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so 
CNO Greener, you know, has put out some requests for information and research. Uh, he's begun to integrate those into his public statements and uh, and his speeches. And and because of his leadership and the example that he he's he served in that, we've begun to get uh, additional inquiries from other leaders within the Navy. Um, I can tell you, you know, that you the the, the standbys uh, recently retired uh, Admiral Harvey. You know, has always been a fan of history, and right up to the day of his retirement. You know, we had a lot of back and forth with Fleet Forces Command. Uh, we suspect that because of the staff that he's built, that that will continue. And, of course, Admiral Stavridis is uh, no mean slouch at UCOM, you know, with a Ph.D. of his own and his appreciation of history. So we're actually seeing, I think, uh, and it's something that I've seen, you know, over the course of my 25 years, that, uh, you know, in, in many ways the game is coming to us, the, the growing appreciation of history, as I think the Navy's coming to grips with uh, with the, the the change in culture that it went through in the 1960s and 1970s, where it, it began to emphasize more and more technology and systems approach to problems, uh, and not that that was bad. Certainly, to ramp up to deal with Aegis technologies uh, mean that we had to kind of change our mindset. But now I think that there's a movement back into balance with the social studies and history and and strategy. Uh, and making sure that we're including those concepts in our conversations as we do systems development and systems analysis and start thinking about fleet structure. So right now I'm, I'm seeing great examples from leadership. Um, I'm seeing it also in the, in the secretariat. Uh, both the, the SECNAV has uh, expressed increased interest. Uh, uh, I, I say increased, but I, I, I really mean sort of a, a, a prevailing interest in history. Uh, in his speeches, he's always looking for historical analogies uh, on energy as he goes forward with that initiative, uh, as well as the undersecretary, of course, is well known for his appreciation of history. So we're seeing it from both sides, civilian and military right now, an interest in what we're doing over here, as well as their, their personal investment of their time, uh, and quite frankly, uh, in, in the budget, uh, in, in increased investment here at History and Heritage Command in helping us to make sure we preserve the archives and the artifacts. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, Raymond, did you have a question? I did. Um, I spent the thank you, by the way, Captain Hendricks, for um, putting together this call. This is great information. Um, it's good to talk to you again. I've spent the last couple of months in the uh, Center for Naval Analysis has put out a history of their capstone strategies documents, and it looks at all of the capstone documents that have been produced by the Navy from the 1970 from about 1974 to I believe the, the most recent would be the NOC. And it, it looks at each one, and it, it's basically the history of those documents. And one of the things that I have observed in reading through this history of those documents and the documents themselves is that history is prominent early in the 1970s and 80s in the documents that are produced by the Navy, but have become less so over, say, the last decade and maybe a little more. And my question is whether the Naval History and Heritage Command intends to get involved in the development of capstone strategy documents like, uh, you know, the next uh, version of the Maritime Strategy, the next version of the NOC, these, these documents that basically explain what the Navy is and what they're doing and put, uses history as a context in the older versions, but in more recent versions hasn't. Is there, is there a role developing there? Is there should there be? I just would like to hear your take on that. Well, the question of whether there is a role and whether that should be really is, is not for me to decide. Uh, what I can do and what I am doing 
is um, attempting to make the leadership aware of the resources that are here, the amount, quite frankly, of the brain power that's here, the people that are deeply immersed in these topics, that uh, the leadership would know that we're here and that we're available for reach back. Um, you know, I try to get out and engage uh, leadership, um, you know, on these topics. Of course, I, I have a long, you know, personal interest in naval strategy and, and these particular documents and, and uh, had a, an up-close and personal uh, observation when we were developing the knock the last time around. Um, but uh, to the extent, uh, it's not something I can necessarily push into, but I can certainly make them aware that we're here and available to assist if they want to immerse uh, or, or anchor these documents in history. I think from listening in on the background conversations that the, the history is there even if it's not uh, necessarily um, surfaced and evident and being discussed. Um, there's only so far you can go with the discussion of naval strategy before you find yourself you know, uh, treading in Mahan's shoes. Uh, whether people are aware that they're into those concepts or not, the fact is it's there. Uh, I think that it strengthens the arguments if we can codify them or anchor them in uh, Clausewitzian or Mahanian terms as so far as within the strategic community. But beyond that, I think it's important as we go to the American people and we talk to the American people about the importance of the United States Navy and sea power in the maritime environment, uh, that they understand that, you know, historically we are a, a maritime nation and that we've been in that competition since our founding. I mean, there is a reason why the Constitution, Article One, Section 7, requires that the Congress maintain a Navy, um, and, and it's codified in the founding documents. And uh, I think it's important for us to get those ideas out there and, and circulate them. So, um we're here. I'm making it very evident that we're here to support, and um, and uh, we will uh, we look forward to working with the staffs uh, inside the OpMath staff as we go forward. Thank you, sir. And somebody else joined the line. Uh, can I get your name? Well, actually, it's still John Scribe. I was on earlier and uh, had a phone drop out. Roger that. Did you have a question? Sure did. Um, Cam Hendricks, first off, uh, thanks for um, offering uh, this, uh, this opportunity to uh, talk with somebody from uh, Navy History and Heritage Command. I've got um, a, a two-part question, and the first one is, as a, a longtime consumer, if you will, of uh, the archives, particularly uh, the operational side, both for my uh, personal and also for my day job here, um, the question I have goes to the archival material and the change, if you will, that, has, uh, that technology has brought and the challenges that that's going to provide to you as the archivist uh, down the road here. And let me give an example. Um, if you go back and you work through uh, the operational archives and look at ship's logs, uh, communications logs, uh, flight schedules, everything like that, you're look, looking at two media, paper or microfiche. As you move forward to the last decade or so, you have an explosion of media that is not just uh, physical, but um, you know, across the electronic spectrum as well. How are you going to capture the VTCs, the chat rooms, um, 
all of the uh, the non-standard uh, forms of communication that have become policy and execution uh, venues. And, and did you have another question? Yeah, and the second question um, goes to um, the generation of those unit histories themselves, and uh, how do you get the, uh, the the folks that are writing those on board to add some flesh to those to the, towards more than just a recitation? Uh, important facts, to be sure, but a little bit more flesh to the bones than just hours flown, hours steamed, ports visited, parts ordered. Yeah, you you raised you know two really good questions, and it's it's something that uh, the History and Heritage Command was wrestling with um, before I even got here. Uh, so believe me, nothing I'm about to say is uh, is um, any you know any part of, of of the work that I brought here. But you know we we did enter the internet uh, and in the email you know era back in the 90s, and so um, you know the previous era of, of Little paper memorandums and snowflakes and uh, and typewritten uh, reports, you know, that has that has passed uh, passed us by, and now, you know, we went through a period of time where we were all up on, you know, Microsoft Outlook and sending emails back and forth, uh, and there was no requirements uh, in place at that point in time to do the backups and the backlogs. But we've caught up with that now, and and most commands are in fact required. You know, to do nightly downloads, and there's actually laws in place for maintenance of public records. We are working uh, with the essentially, um, you know, the people behind NMCI um, and on the higher levels of classification and the, the internet that are associated, or the uh, the internet and exchanges that are associated with that, to try and work out the system by which we will preserve the, the critical records. Um, and by critical records, you know, here. Uh, you know, we have never kept all the documents, you know, that were ever generated. There's there's sets and standards that go into, you know, what type of records have to be maintained. And so we need to, we're working to establish sort of the set standards on what types of emails between, you know, what types of individuals need to be preserved going forward. But it's a, it's a huge task because the fact of the matter is, is it's a lot easier to write an email than it is to sit down and type out a memorandum as it was in the past. And so uh, do you want every bit of day-to-day, -day, you know, records um, going forward? Uh, probably not. But do you want the, the real serious uh, exchanges of information, weekly reports, monthly reports, that type of material? Yes, you do. And so we're working to set those types of standards going further. And we're also working to, you know, imagine what type of a server farm, you know, that we would need uh, associated with History and Heritage Command to be able to preserve all those digital uh, data records going forward. Um, your, your second question deals with unit and command histories. And um, although I, I have to say that, you know, um, when I had command of, of a squadron, um, you know, my annual command history was a rich document that was filled with virtually everything that we did, but that was because I was a geek and I really enjoyed doing that. Um, and, but most of the ones that we get, you know, are, are, are sort of the fill-in-the-blank, you know, type of, of forms. And, and to that extent, I think that that goes, once again, to culture and making sure that commands understand the importance of really telling their entire story uh, beyond, you know, when people check in and check out and the significant events, number of flight hours flown, number of miles steamed. But, 
we also need all that information, too, and even that is a challenge with the tempo of uh, the way that the fleet operates now. So, um, you know, we're looking at different initiatives. There's any number of unit awards that come up every year that everyone fills out multiple different forms for between battle E and, and uh, different types of trophy competitions on retention. And uh, to make sure that essentially, you know, uh, we're looking at the possibility of every time one of those gets generated that we would get copies of that going forward um, and, and then get those digitized and stored and, and remain on board here so we get a, a fuller and more complete picture of the history of the Navy. And the other thing that, uh, that I'm looking at is, is the actual of historians, actual trained historians and where they could be placed in the future that they would actually be there to monitor briefings. I mean, most of the communication that goes on inside the, the Pentagon or inside the Navy now in, in many ways takes, point, you know, takes place in a briefing format. So collecting and archiving those briefings really gives us an insight in the development and generation of ideas. So we've got a lot of ideas, uh, and we're working on that. Uh, there were things that we were working on you know, before I arrived here in May, and, uh, and I'm going to continue to press forward on those because I, I think it is important that we, we kind of capture the Navy in, in, in as much detail as possible. Thanks. Uh, if I could, I'd like to uh, follow up on uh, part of the, uh, the first question with your answer there. Is it a long question? Or we are, we're going to go back to Lauren. Oh, no. No, just uh, very quickly. Um, one thing I would caution uh, as you look through the emails, uh, many of them may appear to be somewhat mundane originally, particularly if you try to just go off of the subject line. But what's really important about those, and as somebody who in a former life was very much involved in the strategy and policymaking process, is the thought development that you see that, that grows across, if you will, the email chain and then that provides the underpinning for those briefings that come later. So as you're going back and autopsying something, looking at the brief, and even if you happen to have one that's got the briefing notes, it's uh, important to understand what was the thought process that went into the development of that brief and into the development of that policy, and it may be resonant in some other forum. All right, noted. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And... Uh we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Uh, Commander Solomon, did you have a follow-up? Yep, sure did. Um, and uh, th this is a, a little little personal for me because it's something I've been explaining to my wife for the better part of a, of a quarter century is uh, what, what convinced me to uh, invest over two decades of my life in the United States Navy was baked into me before age 10. And I can directly trace it to three things. One was, uh, surprisingly, a, a visit to a Spanish frigate. Uh, in the 1970s, and the other two were the Air and Space Museum in D.C. and also the USS Alabama Memorial, and we have uh, ships as part of museums and memorials throughout the U.S., you know, not just the Alabama, the North Carolina, the Texas, of course the Iowa classes are going out there as well. Uh, the Japanese, uh, really pretty much that came on the stage with the Russo-Japanese War, that the Imperial Japanese Navy ship Mikawa was a critical part of, and in spite of everything that happened after the Second World War, with U.S. help, ironically, uh, they were able to preserve that ship, and it is a, a, a great museum of a particular period in time. Uh, 
A similar occasion for our nation was the Spanish-American War and the USS Olympia, which is uh, well, most people don't know, but I think most people here do know, is in a significant danger uh, in both the material condition and financial support of disappearing. Is there something, I know there's been some discussions of perhaps expanding uh, a U.S. Navy-focused museum in the D.C. area, is there any way to tie that type of movement, maybe a public-private partnership, that could also focus on the USS Olympia in time that we can save that irreplaceable, not just the pre-dreadnought, but we talk about pivot points, a pivot point in our nation's history relative to how it interacts with the rest of the world? Well, that, 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 is, a, that, that is a significant question, and, and quite frankly, it's a question that does preoccupy me uh, personally. Um, I have to be very careful as we go forward professionally. The USS Olympia was uh, transferred from Navy, essentially Navy ownership back in the 1950s uh, to be placed where she is now in, up in uh, Philadelphia on the Delaware River. And yes, she is in um, significant decline, especially with rust um, and the weakness of the hull at the waterline up there. Um, and, and the Navy you know, still does have an interest uh, in the historic ships, not just Olympia, but all historic ships, um, that, um, that it so far is what their state and condition are, because we don't want to see any of the ships um, treated in an undignified manner, specifically given their, their, their great history. Um, but to the extent that we can become involved financially, especially in the tight fiscal times we have, you know, there's, uh, we, we have to be very careful going forward. And I think also the Olympia provides an example, and Battleship Texas as well, of the long-term issues that go with the display of historic ships. I mean, you're taking steel and salt water and you're mixing it repeatedly, and, and we all know about the chemical process that goes along with that. And so, you know, there, there is sort of this in, inevitable creep uh, towards, uh, you know, towards demise unless certain actions are taken to preserve the, the ships for the long term. But, you know, I think that, quite frankly, there's no better um, ambassador for the United States Navy than the USS Constitution, which has remained in commission, you know, low, you know, these 200 years since before the War of 1812. And, uh, and so, you know, I look very carefully at, uh, at Olympia, and I look at the other ships that are out there, and it is something that I'm actually doing a lot of research on now on the way ahead, uh, because the question, you're not the first person that's raised the question, uh, uh, Salamander, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm preparing myself to help uh, provide answers and options going forward, but I don't want to commit myself one way or the other because almost all options dealing with historic ships uh, have dollar signs after them with millions of dollars uh, that would be required to maintain them and preserve them going forward. But you do raise another point, which is, the new National Museum of the Navy. You know, we're getting ready to move the National Museum from its present location on the Navy Yard, where it's been uh, rendered somewhat, it's difficult, more difficult to get to it after 9-11 than what it was. And we're looking at options to make sure that we can move the museum to another building, which would be more accessible to the American public so that the American people in the National Capital Region, as they come here to visit, will gain greater access to the Navy and its heritage. And so. That is one of the initiatives that I'm working uh, very hard on right now, and I'm really excited about uh, the potential to perhaps have a new, larger museum of the, Nash of the United States Navy uh, open uh, in the 2018 timeframe. 
Hey, sir. And uh, one more question, if you have time, sir. Yep. Uh, Raymond, did you have another a follow-up? Absolutely. Um, I have a question on uh, it's. I've heard a lot about the collection of historical um, documentation and material, um, the processes that you were working through, um, some of the changes that you were uh, considering. Uh, you, you mentioned that you, the, the server farm requirements would be massive in order to retain all of this historical information, and uh, I sympathize with you. Um, yeah, you're right. It's going to be expensive. But the question I have is, in terms of accessibility from a public perspective, is there what initiatives do you have underway in order to allow? I mean, I see the Facebook posts, and obviously there's social media um, processes that you guys are using to put, you know, information out there on a daily basis. You've even led clips for the last year on the War of 1812. But what 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 are the what does the future look like in terms of public accessibility to enable historical record? Um, is there anything on the table for that so that beyond just the static content that is published to uh, the Naval History and Heritage Command website, is there the capability of the public in the future to go data mine the, the website so that we can look into all of that unclassified material and, and develop our own uh, set of metrics and, and, and other information that you're able to derive from all of that data, which is, would obviously you mean you're collecting a tremendous amount of data every year, and over time that's going to be a tremendous wealth, a treasure if it is, of naval information. Will the public have accessibility to that, and, and what, are, what are you looking into in that regards? Well, you know, the, the, the simple answer to your question is I don't know. Um, whether the public have uh, uh, that access. Uh, what I do know, because I'm on step three of a process to digitize and get uploaded into some sort of a readable format uh, through an internet environment, um, you know, and, and we're investing in that and, and literally, you know, beginning to ramp up the amount of dollars and contracts that we're putting at that type of an access. But because of the, the staff that, that both was here and that we're bringing on board, we're, we're aware that this is, where the, this is where the argument or the discussion is heading, is, is this, this data mining type environment that we're already beginning to see in other aspects of the government or other aspects of private industry and the, and the environment. So what you're describing is about step you know, uh, 131, and, and I'm working on, on step three right now, to begin that process, and I can, I, I certainly can see that within, you know, the scope of the vision. Uh, but to give you any level of confidence about when that will, when that will occur, and when we'll reach that level of maturity, and how quickly, um, that I can't give with with any level of confidence right now. Thank you very much, sir. And with that, if you have a closing statement that you'd like to say as we wrap things up, the floor is yours. Well, I, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all, and if there's, you know, one thing that I would like to convey to you is that, um, you know, there is a power in history. Uh, there is a power to inspire. There's um, a power to enlighten and inform. And uh, I can tell you that the professionals here at the Naval History and Heritage Command, be it our, our staff of historians, many of which are, are world-renowned within their profession, uh, our archivists uh, and, uh, and our curators, 
um, who, who have an amazing uh, knowledge, encyclopedic knowledge, actually, of you know, all the artifacts that we hold uh, within the warehouses and within the collection here. They are all dedicated to preserving this and promoting it and getting it out there. What I'm excited about right now is making this information more accessible to the American people, uh, to the Navy at large, meaning from everyone from, you know, the, uh, you know, petty officers and seamen all the way up to the MCPON. And, and I got to tell you, I'm really excited about the new MCPON uh, because, you know, he's been here. He's excited about it, and we're, we're, uh, he's uh, been participating with us uh, in discussions about the new uh, museum. Uh, the CNO, who you know, comes and visits, uh, and and of course the secretary and the undersecretary as well, and the, the secretariat. We know that the leadership is interested. We're here to support them, and, and we're, the dialogue is beginning to go back and forth with greater rapidity. So, um, I appreciate that you all uh, taking the opportunity to listen in on this, and I like the questions that you're asking. Um, but I, I think that Naval History and Heritage Command is 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 heading in a good direction right now. And, uh, and we appreciate your interest.